Father, we do thank you and bless you for the wonderful privileges, Lord, that you give us to serve you, not only in our own homes and communities and in our city and our in our country, but Lord, to uh, be able to be given, as Uzziah has been given, this opportunity to be in Haiti to help those people who are still suffering so much from the uh, from the effects of the earthquake um, a few months ago. But we're uh, thankful, Lord God, to be able to bring them before your throne of grace this morning in prayer. Lord, that you will grant them safety and uh, health, uh, good health, throughout all their time there. That you'll give them every opportunity, Lord, to share the love of Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ in all that they do. That in their work of helping and building and constructing whatever it is, houses and and other things, that, Lord, you will keep them safe in those uh, endeavors that, Lord, you will get, grant them, Father, an opportunity to continue to be such a witness, not only by what they say, but even by what they do uh, to the Haitian people. So we, we ask you, Lord, to bless them and, and uh, their team all together, and that uh, you would bring them back, Lord, uh, on the 29th safely and, uh, and ready to continue on in their studies uh, at the Bible College. We ask this morning for the anointing and the blessing of your Holy Spirit as we come now to your word and ask, Lord, that you grant us the understanding necessary to see, Lord, how precious your word is from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, how you have put together a message for us to see in every part of your word. May we be attentive, Lord God, to that word today. We ask in Jesus' name, amen and amen. Well, let's turn to Genesis chapter 5, if you will. Genesis chapter 5. Now, this is now, uh, we have been going through a, a very intensive study of the book of Genesis, but this is our third week in the, in the book, uh, in actually in the chapter uh, that we're in now, chapter 5. We have dealt now a little bit with uh, the understanding of how man at that time lived for so long. We have uh, looked somewhat at the, uh, the issue of the reality of death because of the fall of man. And today we're going to even broaden the scope of our, of our study as we look from verses 3 down through verse 32. At this genealogy, and as I mentioned last time, that we wanted to look at the message that God is giving us in this genealogy. I've been trying to make a, uh, an argument that uh, even every genealogy with every name that we see written is there for a reason. And as we'll see today, there's a message in the genealogy that we've been given in chapter 5. So let's look, if you will, from verse 3 down to verse 32. And I'm going to warn you, I'm going to read uh, these passages a couple of times. So don't be upset with the begats today. Just consider it uh, your patient love toward me. And Adam lived 130 years and begat a son in his own likeness after his image and called his name Seth. And the days of Adam after he had begotten Seth were 800 years. And he begat sons and daughters. And all the days that Adam lived were 930 years. And he died. And Seth lived 105 years and begat Enosh. 
And Seth lived after he begat Enosh 807 years and begat sons and daughters, and all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. And Enosh lived 90 years and begat Canaan, and Enosh lived after he begat Canaan 815 years and begat sons and daughters, and all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. And Canaan lived 70 years and begat Mahalalel. And Canaan lived after he begat Mahalalel 840 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Canaan were 910 years. And he died. And Mahalalel lived 60 and 5 years and begat Jared. And Mahalalel lived after he begat Jared 830 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Mahalalel were 890 and five years, and he died. And Jared lived 160 and two years, and he begat Enoch. And Jared lived after he begat Enoch 800 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Jared were 960 and two years, and he died. And Enoch lived sixty and five years and begat Methuselah. And Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah three hundred years, and begat sons and daughters, and all the days of Enoch were three hundred and sixty and five years. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. The story changes, doesn't it? Enoch doesn't die. He walks with God. Gives birth to a son named Methuselah. God takes him. We'll talk about him a little bit more later today. And then next week we're going to focus our attention upon Enoch. Verse 25. And Methuselah lived 180 and 7 years and begat Lamech. And Methuselah lived after he begat Lamech 780 and two years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Methuselah were 960 and nine years. And he died. He lived longer than anyone else. 969 years. Yet he still died. And Lamech lived 180 and two years and begat a son. And he called his name Noah, saying, This same shall comfort us concerning our work and toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord has cursed. And Lamech lived after he begat Noah 590 and five years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Lamech were 770 and seven years. And he died. And Noah was 500 years old. And Noah begat Shem, Ham. And Japheth. I want to begin this morning by looking at uh, a, a topic of biblical prophecy. Just a, a quick little lesson on biblical prophecy. Because uh, when we hear the word prophecy, I think the first thing that we think of is something that we need to look at at the future, that something is predicted and something's going to happen later. But biblical prophecy, classically explained, is not only a foretelling. 
Biblical prophecy is not only a foretelling, which means the predicting, let's say, of world events before they happen. But biblical prophecy is also a forth-telling. You see the difference? There is a foretelling and a forth-telling. The forth-telling is declarations and proclamations made by the creator of the heavens and the earth, of all that is seen and unseen. It is every message prefaced with a phrase that rings with authority. Thus saith the Lord. That is God's prophetic word. It is a foretelling. What comes from God is prophetic. Always. It is God's word that points us to our past. It speaks to our present. And it exhorts with warning and encouragement to our future. So there is foretelling. And there is foretelling. And to make simple and clear that the Word of God is an integrated message system that comes from outside of our dimension of time, Chuck Missler uh, says uh, very concisely that the Bible, and I quote, is composed of 66 individual books penned by 40 separate authors over literally thousands of years. Upon careful inspection, it proves to be an integrated message, evidencing careful and skillful design which transcends those centuries and even our ability to synthesize using sophisticated computers. All of that comes from God. Even at a time when man couldn't synthesize this, God put an integrated message together. And this is the reason why when we consider every genealogy, every chapter of the scriptures, there is something there for us to learn. There is something there for us to grasp. There's something there for us to learn, not only for ourselves, but for those that we will certainly declare to the message of the gospel. So it's certainly a major reason why we need to take seriously our reading and our studying of of these biblical genealogies. The Lord placed all these names, as I said before, in the scriptures for a reason. They're there for a reason. Now, if the Old Testament lays the foundation for the New Testament by portraying the predicament of, of man, which is sin, and the means by which man's predicament will ultimately be resolved, which is a savior... then it is to our great benefit to look carefully at these names, for indeed, there is a message in them. There There is an integrated message in these names. And this is why Paul would say in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, all scripture. I want you to notice, it doesn't say some scripture or most scripture or the majority of scripture. It says all scripture. And when you deal with that, you're dealing with every word that God has given. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. In other words, all scripture is God-breathed. Literally, God-breathed. And is profitable. And I'll tell you this, if uh, if we need anything in our lives today, it's something that is profitable. Something that means something to us. Something that, that will help us in the days to come. All of scripture is profitable for us. For doctrine, in other words, for teaching, for reproof, uh, you know, for pointing out that which is right, that which is wrong, for correction, 
whenever we stray from that which is right. For instruction in righteousness to bring us back to what is right before God. That is the word of God to us. It is profitable for these things that the man of God may be perfect, which means complete, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. It's important that we see that even as we read these genealogies in the scriptures. Peter himself would say in 2 Peter chapter 1 verses 19 through 21, we, all, we have also a more sure word of prophecy. You see, what is he talking about here? He's talking about not only foretelling, but of forthtelling. Everything that comes from God is something that we need to take heed to. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that you take heed. As unto a light that shineth in a dark place. What is the word of God to us? It is a, a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. Psalm 119 verse 105. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. It is as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in our hearts. Speaking of Jesus. Knowing this first that no prophecy of the scripture, notice, is of any private interpretation. How many people today that we've heard tell us, you know, they've, they've never read the Bible as a whole. Maybe they've read selected passages or whatever. But they tell us, oh listen, the Bible is just a bunch of ideas written by man. Do they know that? They've never read it. Peter has to say this, the prophecy of scripture is, is not of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. There's the distinction. It didn't come by man's will, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Holy men spake, men set apart by God to receive his word, to write it down. So often the prophets themselves didn't understand what they were writing, but they knew it was coming from God. And they knew that it could point them in the direction of the coming Messiah. There's this little dictum that we oftentimes mention. It's something that you need to remember. Speaking of the, the New Testament, it says the new is in the old concealed. If you look at the Old Testament, the new is there concealed. The old is in the new revealed. Keep that in mind. God's word never contradicts itself. God's word always complements itself. God's word always confirms itself. And so let's seek to lay out this message in the names given to us in this genealogy of the godly line of Adam through Seth. Now remember, uh, we've talked about this before. The line from Adam through Seth that takes us uh, through Noah and then, of course, through his sons. And then we go from there all the way to David and from David all the way to Jesus. That's the line. This is where it begins. Let's look at verses 3 through 8. And Adam lived 130 years and begat a son in his own likeness after his image and called his name Seth. And the days of Adam after he had begotten Seth were 800 years, and he begat sons and daughters. And all the days of the, uh, that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. And Seth lived 105 years, and begat Enosh. And Seth lived after he begat Enosh 807 years, and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Seth were 912 years. And he died. Now, as, as I've already stated in previous studies, Adam's name simply means man. Or if you come a become a little bit more specific, man of the earth. Or even more specifically, man of red earth. That's what the name Adam means. Now, Seth's name, 
We've also talked about Seth's name, which means, uh, and uh, I've given a kind of a long uh, uh, series of, of uh, meanings, but they're all important because they all fit together. Seth's name means set in place, set in place of, appointed. By the way, that's the word we're going to focus on today, just one, appointed. But it also means replacement or replaces, approved, compensation, or substitute. We studied this a couple of weeks ago. So let's just say appointed. A little easier to remember that. And then Seth had a son, and he named his son Enosh, which means mortal. It means frail one. And it also means miserable. It means to be in misery. That's an interesting thing to call your son. I mean, I'm sure he didn't wait till his son grew up and he said, boy, what a miserable son I've got. I think that's what I'll call him. No, God gave him the wisdom to call him that when he was born. Why? Well, you know, it's interesting that, 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 his, uh, that this name comes from, from the Hebrew word, uh, which is anash, which means incurable as a wound, grief, woe, sickness, or wickedness. We talked about the fact that because of the fall of man, and Adam was there because Adam was the one who fell. God had made a promise that there would be a Messiah, there would be a Redeemer. And so Seth was appointed to be the one to bring this line into being. Appointed now by God, not either Abel or Cain. Abel was killed by his brother Cain. Cain was of the ungodly line, therefore neither one of them. But now Seth is appointed. But he names his son mortal, frail one, in misery. Why? Because that was the reality of the fall. Not only that, but consider this, if you will. Consider then why it says in Genesis chapter 4, verse 26, the last verse of Genesis 4, it says, and to set to him also there was born a son, and he called his name Enosh. And then men, or then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. They came to the realization of the reality of the consequences of sin. They came to the realization that as men who had fallen before God... They could not save themselves. The reality of sin is mortality. They would die. And how often do we read, and he died, and he died, and he died. And by the way, that would not only include those who are mentioned, but everyone who was born of them, sons and daughters, would die. Now we can say that to call upon the name of the Lord is to summon his aid. And boy, did, do we need his aid when we discover our mortality and our frailty. So we see now why his son was named what he was. But it's part of the message. It's part of what God is saying to his people. 
Let's go on. Let's look at verse 9 and, uh, of Genesis 5. And Enosh lived 90 years and begat Canaan. And, and Enosh, uh, Enosh lived after he begat Canaan 815 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Enosh were 905 years. And he died. And Canaan lived 70 years and begat Mahalalel. And Canaan lived after he begat Mahalalel 840 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Canaan were 910 years and he died. And Mahalalel lived sixty and five years and begat Jared. And Mahalalel lived after he begat Jared eight hundred and thirty years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Mahalalel were eight hundred ninety and five years and he died. And Jared lived a hundred sixty and two years and he begat Enoch. And Jared lived after he begat Enoch eight hundred years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Jared were nine hundred sixty and two years and he died. Let's go back to Enosh now. Enosh then had a son, whom he called Canaan, or in some of your translations, Kenan, which can mean sorrow, dirge, or elegy, which all deal somewhat with death, don't they? There's sorrow and there's death. A dirge is usually a, a song or, or some kind of music to lead the procession of, of a funeral or of death. An elegy is what you give in, in, in memory of those who die. And Canaan meant that, sorrow, dirge, or elegy. Now the word Canaan also could mean to purchase or to redeem. But Canaan's son now was named Mahalalel. And any word that ends in E-L, of course, ends with, with the name of God. That is the name of God, E-L, L. Mahalalel literally means the blessed God. The blessed God. And then Mahalalel's son was named Jared, which comes from the Hebrew root word Yarad, which means descent, to pour out, or shall come down. So now let's see what we have so far. We have Adam, man of the earth. And then there's Seth, which means appointed. And then there is Enosh, the mortal, frail one in misery, who gives birth to Canaan, which means sorrow, dirge, or elegy. But then Mahalalel is born, and his name means the blessed God. And he names his son Jared, which means to descend or to come down, shall come down. Okay, so we have a little bit of the story there, but not really understandable quite yet. So we read on, verse 21. And Enoch lived sixty and five years and begat Methuselah. And Enoch walked with God. After he begat Methuselah three hundred years and begat sons and daughters. Let me say to you that that, that doesn't mean that the others didn't walk with God. But there's a specific reason why we see that it says that he walked with God here. It tells us that he walked with God after he begat Methuselah 300 years. And he begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch walked with God. It mentions it again. <laughs> what consistency in his life. Enoch walked with God and he was not. It never says that he dies. It just says that he was not. Poof. He's not there. 
And it says, for God took him. That's why we're going to talk about him next week, all by himself. Because there's something there we need to learn about God's plan for the ages. And Methuselah then, his son, lived 180 and 7 years and begat Lamech. Methuselah lived after he begat Lamech 780 and 2 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Methuselah were 960 and 9 years. And he died. Man who lived the longest on the earth. Almost a thousand years. 969 years. Well, Jared's son, as we mentioned, was named Enoch. And that's a name that we've studied before, back in chapter 4. Remember, there was another Enoch. Cain's son was named Enoch. He went on to name his first city by his son's name, Enoch. That is Cain. Now the name comes from the Hebrew word Hanak, as we mentioned before. Hanak, of course, is the root word for the celebration that we know that's coming up here in, in December for the, for the Jewish people, which is Hanukkah, the Feast of Hanukkah, which is, in fact, the Feast of Dedication. And Hanak means to dedicate. It means dedication. It means also to teach or to instruct. It even means commencement. And it brings to mind this thought, and I, I don't want to go off on any major tangent, but I think it's a, it's a, good, it's a good thing to remember that with, when it comes to the teaching and the instruction of God's word, there is a certain amount of dedication and diligence that needs to be applied to the, to the study of God's word in preparation for teaching it. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2 verse 15, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Now the New King James would translate that first word study to be, be diligent. And, and in a sense that really is a good commentary to the word study, because study is really what we do, should do, and we should do it diligently. With dedication. To present ourselves approved unto God. Workers who, who need not be ashamed. Rightly dividing the word of truth. Rightly breaking the word of truth down so that we can understand it fully as we're doing today. And so I think it's, a, it's an important thing that, that this son was named Enoch, Hanach. A dedicated one. We already see that dedication in the fact that he walked with God. And not only does he, is it mentioned that he walked with God once, it mentions that he walked with God twice. Again, it's not to say that the others didn't walk with God. But God took him. But before God took him, he had a son. And he named his son Methuselah. Now that's an interesting name. Because some people have, have kind of uh, taken it in, in, in a sense, of, in a very general sense, to mean the man of, a, of the javelin uh, or the man of the spear. We don't quite understand why. But if you break down his name a little bit more deeper in, in Hebrew phrasing, it comes to mean this. Dying he shall send. Very literally, Methuselah means dying he shall send. Now, why would anybody name his son that? Now, here again, we're thinking, 
Boy, they really named their sons funny things. Whatever happened to Bob and Tom and Tim and Jim? Methuselah, dying he shall send. Again, he didn't name him that until he could see his life. He named him that because God put it on his heart to name him that. Methuselah, dying he shall send. Why? Well, what did God send the year that Methuselah died? I'm getting a little ahead of myself here because we're going to study this before we study the flood. But why, or what, I should say, did God send the year that Methuselah died? He sent the flood. As soon as Methuselah died, the flood came. There was a message there, wasn't there? There was a message in his name. After Methuselah was born, going back to the time that he was named, Enoch had to have had some special awareness from the Lord that judgment was soon coming. It's important for us to remember that by the time of Noah, there was nearly 7 billion people on the earth. If we make all of the calculations right about all, in a very even in a conservative sense, of all that came out of Adam and all of his sons and daughters and, and so on and so forth, that the world multiplied as far as the population. That by Noah's time, there were 7 billion people on the earth. The two lines... The godly line and the ungodly line. The godly line of Seth, the ungodly line of, of Cain. They were multiplying too. And there were many who were rebellious against God. That's why the flood was coming. And so Enoch must have been given some special awareness that the Lord uh, was, uh, was bringing judgment and it was coming soon. And this was probably one of the things that drew him closer in his walk with God. Wouldn't that do for you too? If you knew what was coming, that you would get closer to God, get right with God, get, get things right with God in your life because you knew that something was coming? What happened after, two, what happened after 9-11, 2001? Churches were being filled with people. Something's happening, something's coming. We better get right with God. Things begin to settle down, you know, and then all of a sudden we're back to normal. And what happens? We go back to our way of living without God. Something's not right. We've been given special warning that Jesus is coming soon. And because Jesus is coming soon, a lot of things are happening. It's happening now. Things are happening in the world now. That ought to do something. It ought to draw us closer to God. Don't you think? Is it happening? I hope it's happening with us. You, uh, let me see. A lot, lot of open Bibles, yes? Okay, good. What is that telling you? We're seeing what God is saying. We're seeing what God is saying. It should draw us closer to him. I want you to listen to the inspired uh, uh, words of Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. Now keep your finger here because I'm going to come back to verse 9. But in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 11, it says, Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved. Now he's talking about the fact that the heavens and the earth as we know them today, <clears throat> they will all be melted, dissolved with fervent heat. <clears throat> that is one thing that Peter is saying here, prophetically. He's foretelling. 
Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be? What is he drawing to the hearts of the people listening to him? To the hearts of the people reading his letter? What manner of persons ought you to be in holy conversation, in holy conduct, and in godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat? We need to get ready. If that letter was written 2,000 years ago, thereabouts, for a people that were waiting for the Lord then, how much closer is this coming now? Or we can listen to the words of 1 John chapter 2, the, the Apostle John writing to the church in verses 28 and 29. He says, And now, little children, abide in him. In other words, abide, dwell in Jesus Christ. That when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. You know that something's going to come. You know that he's going to appear again. You know that he's coming and when he comes, things are going to be happening. They're happening now. This is not a matter of scaring you. This is not to try to put fear into you. Well, yes it is. Oh, yes, it is. But the right kind of fear. The biblical fear that says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of instruction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of understanding his righteousness. That's the kind of fear we need to have. A fear that says, I know that God's word is true from cover to cover, from Genesis to Revelation. And I want to live for that word. Because Jesus can come at any moment. And who wants to be ashamed when he comes? Who wants to be ashamed? I don't want to be ashamed. I want to be right where God wants me to be when he comes. We need to want that too. Now we're also told in the epistle of Jude, and we'll talk a little bit more about this next week when we talk about Enoch, but we're also told in the epistle of Jude that Enoch, even as a prophet of God, as early on as he was in time, I mean, because we're talking about way back then, as early on as he was in time, he could still see the second coming of Jesus Christ. Because in Jude, in that one chapter of Jude, Jude uh, verses 14 and 15, this is what it says. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam. By the way, do you know why he's called the seventh from Adam here? That is to distinguish him from the ungodly Enoch, the son of Cain. But we'll talk about that next week. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these things, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints, foretelling and foretelling. To execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. He's coming to execute judgment on all that is ungodly. I don't know where people get, the, get off on the idea that, you know, well, listen, Jesus is meek and mild and we need to, you know, we need to take on that little, you know, that little bit of meekness of, of Jesus uh, Folks, listen, we are to do the work of Christ to help and feed the poor, to strengthen. When we see somebody hurting, to go to them in the love of Christ. You know, we're called to do that, but we're called to do that in strength and in the power of the Holy Spirit. 
But you know, when the people say, well, you know, we're not to judge. And, Wait a minute, God's going to judge. Let, let's get things right. When we see Jesus coming, you look at the, the, the picture of Jesus in the book of Revelation, and he's coming with eyes of fire. That's not there to just kind of give us drama. That's there because he's coming to judge. The first time he came, he didn't come to judge, but that all the world would know that he is the Redeemer. He came to save. When he comes a second time, he comes to judge. And I hope and pray that we come with him. By the way, the word says that the the saints, just as Enoch was saying, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. You want to be a part of that number? I think we should be. You know when you hear the song, when the saints come marching in? That's not about marching into into, into New Orleans. Or New Orleans, as they say. It's not about that. It's about marching in with Jesus Christ. We need to be part of that saint, that number of saints. Not, not you know, well, you can march into, you can march into New Orleans anytime you want, I guess. But right now it's kind of a weird city. But yeah, you know what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. Every city is weird. El Paso is weird. Okay, so by the way, we're not the weird ones here because we know what the truth is, and we need to stand on the truth of God and of Christ. Okay, well, anyway, and then. We need to see Methuselah's long life of 969 years. I made a mistake right here. That's supposed to be 969. 969. Almost 1,000 years. I got all my nines and my sixes all messed up there. We just see that Methuselah's long life of 969 years was not an accident either. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't just the fact that he just lived a good life. You know, it's like saying, well, you know, Methuselah, he didn't smoke or drink or, you know, or chew or go out with girls that do. His long life was planned by God. It was planned by God. It was a matter of the grace of God. For Methuselah, who was named dying, he shall send to live so long. Why? Because if Methuselah died and the flood came, then God kept him alive longer than anybody else to give people as long as possible to repent and to turn back to the Lord. Because as soon as he dies, judgment comes. And by the way, if you still have your finger in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 tells us that. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's God's heart. He does not rejoice in the death of the wicked. God desires that all should come in repentance to him. But God also knows that not all will. And that's the sad part of the life that we live as believers in Jesus Christ. Wanting everybody, we want everybody to go to heaven, don't we? And don't say, well, except for this guy. No, no, no. You know why? Because we know what hell is. Because of what the scriptures tell us it is. We don't want anyone to go there. Neither does God. It wasn't even created for men. It was created for the devil and his angels. So we know then how ominous it is. And so there is God's grace. Therein lies God's mercy. Therein therein lies God's love for those whom he created. 
to be in his image. So now Methuselah's son was named Lamech, which can mean poor and lowly. And remember, we met another Lamech back in chapter 4 of the ungodly line of Seth. Uh, I'm sorry, ungodly line of Cain. Uh, it also could mean this. Lamech can also mean one who despairs. One who despairs. To despair is to be at the point of hopelessness. There's so many people at that point in life today. The point of hopelessness. Just, there's no more hope anymore. Well, I mean, we've heard too many people with the promises, you know, hope and this and hope and change and all that. Listen, only God has what it takes to change. Only God can change the heart of man. And in Christ alone is there hope for eternal life. So this name, as we mentioned, is also linked to that ungodly line. But how do we use it then? You know, there was a sense of the, the, the name of Lamech also being some, somewhat of, a, uh, of, of an arrogance, at least in him, the person of Lamech in chapter 4. But our focus won't be on him. He's going to, we're going to be focused on Lamech, the father of Noah. So let's go back to verse 28 of Genesis 5. And it says, Lamech lived 180 and two years and begot a son. And he called his name Noah, saying, This same shall comfort us concerning our work and toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord has cursed. And Lamech lived after he begat Noah 590 and five years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Lamech were 770 and seven years. And he died. And Noah was 500 years old. And Noah begat Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So now let's see if the story is complete. Adam, man of the earth. Seth, appointed. Enosh, mortal, frail one, in misery. Canaan, sorrow, dirge, elegy. Mahalalel, the blessed God. Jared uh, shall come down. Enoch, dedicated or dedication, teaching or instruction. Methuselah, dying, he shall send. Lamech, the despairing, hopeless one. Noah, comfort and rest. So let's see if we've got the story. Here's the story. Ready? The man of the earth, remember that this is after the fall. The man of the earth is appointed, mortal, miserable sorrow, even to the point of death. But the blessed God shall come down, dedicated to teaching that his death shall bring the despairing and the hopeless, the rest and comfort that they need. That's the message. Isn't that a beautiful message in the names? The man of the earth is appointed mortal. All because of the fall. Miserable sorrow, working the ground, tilling the soil. Even to the point of death from Dust you came, to dust you shall return. But the blessed God shall come down. Dedicated to teaching. What did Jesus do for three and a half years? 
He taught that his death would bring the despairing and the hopeless the rest and the comfort that they needed. Here's God's love story. All in the names of the genealogy of Genesis chapter 5. It is his story. By the way, history, and I know we've said this, it's almost cliche-ish, but I don't care. History is his story. It is Christ's story. It is the story written with the blood of a spotless and sinless lamb on a rugged old cross lifted up in Judea 2,000 years ago for all to see. We want, you know, we want so much. Now, now be honest here. Be honest with me. We want so much to pick on Adam and Eve for falling, for faltering, for falling and for failing, for disobeying and for rebelling against the Lord God and bringing sin and death and destruction to the world that God created. But listen, when Adam fell, God declared war on Satan, the serpent, and he promised a redeemer. He did not declare war on Adam. He did not declare war on you or with me. He declared war on the enemy. But he promised... He promised a Redeemer. And we see the Redeemer in the story of the names of Genesis 5. Go back to Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, when God speaks directly to the serpent himself, directly to the enemy. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle. And above all, every beast of the field upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. Curse the enemy. Man received his consequence as well. The consequence of having failed in obeying and believing God's word when he said, listen, you can eat of all the fruit of all the trees of the garden except for that one the fruit of the knowledge of the, the the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because on the day that you eat of that tree you will surely die and man began to die man faced the consequence of god's commandment broken but god did not declare war on adam what did god do for adam and eve when they themselves realized now because the glory had been lifted from them they noticed that they were naked and they were ashamed what did God do he took animals killed them shed their blood took their coats and covered them is that war against us or is that love and when Jesus died on that cross Was that war against us? Or was that war against the one who brought sin into this world? Jesus defeated Satan on the cross. And then he solidified that by rising again from the dead. You see, sin and death are our enemies. Jesus said, I've conquered them. And if you believe in me, you'll conquer them too. Do you believe? Turn to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. 
This is a wonderful prelude, this particular chapter, to the season that is about to be coming upon us. Because you see, the prophecy, the foretelling and the forthtelling is all over the Old Testament. Verse 14 of Isaiah 7 says, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. A virgin shall conceive. What have we been talking about in in, in chapter uh, 3, verse 15 of Genesis? God said to the enemy, I will put enmity, I will put hostility between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. Her seed, singular. The prophecy of the Redeemer. But when? The Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive the seed of the woman. Women don't carry seed. Except this one. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And she'll call his name Emmanuel. Two chapters later in verses 6 and 7 of Isaiah 9, it says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David. David, who's David? We know who David is. David falls into that very line that began with Adam through Seth, from Seth through Noah, from Noah through his sons. And then out of that one line, reach down to David, from David to Jesus. The importance of the genealogy of chapter 5. Upon the throne of David, upon his kingdom, to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this prophecy, focusing upon the coming of that Redeemer. Go back just to verse 2 of that same chapter, chapter 9 of Isaiah. And notice what it says, the people that walked in darkness. They were still walking in darkness. The people that walk in darkness shall uh, have seen a great light. This is prophetic. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death upon them. Has the light shined? How interesting and how significant it is that when we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ, that at that very same time, and we know, by the way, we know that Jesus wasn't born in December, but but what's interesting about this is that we, we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ in December, but here's the thing, around the very same time the Jews celebrate the feast of Hanukkah, the feast not only of dedication, but the feast of light or lights. Well, can there be a greater light than the light that came through Jesus Christ? You see, it took the light of a, of a star over Bethlehem to bring not only the, the shepherds, but to bring the attention that God's word was true. Micah 5 verse 2 says that in Bethlehem Ephrathah, That would be the place where this Messiah would be born. The seed of the woman. And what did the people need? They needed comfort. 
They needed Noah. What was the cry of the prophets in Isaiah 40? And we'll close with this. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned. For she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sin. Comfort ye my people. This genealogy in chapter 5 really ends with Noah because of the message. It ends with the rest and the comfort that only God can give. And the comforter and the one who gives rest is Jesus Christ. Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30. I've quoted this, I think, a thousand times if I quote it at all. Jesus said, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly of heart, and thou shalt find rest unto thy soul. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. It would be good for us to examine ourselves, examine our hearts, to see that we're in the faith because... A lot of people think that just because they go to a church, they're, they're Christian. They walk in the doors of a church and they sit down and they, you know, they... See, I'm not talking about you all. I said they. <laughs> they go into a church and sit down and they, you know, they feel like, well, you know, I've given them a good hour and a half of my time. So I must be a Christian. If you walk into a garage, it doesn't make you a car. You've got to believe. You have to confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that he's risen from the dead. Then you shall be saved. You must believe. And you must believe that you have a need for that rest. That you have a need for that comfort. How do we know that? We know that because we learned that we are mortal. That we are frail. That without God, we're in misery. Once we learn that, we cry for God's mercy. And God said, that, that cry, I will answer. I'll answer that cry. Let's pray.